Hey, Cross of Life. Thanks for letting me uh, preach to you virtually once again. Uh, this week, I am in Fairport, New York, which is just southeast of Rochester, uh, working as a circuit pastor, uh, helping a congregation there who is starting a stewardship campaign in their church, and they're asking me to come and preach about what it means to be a disciple. Uh, so uh, I think that's something that is pa I have a passion for and something that I think we do pretty well, actually, at Cross of Life. And uh, so I want to... Uh, take what we've learned here and, and help them with these uh, things from God's word as well. If you do want to hear that sermon that I'm preaching this morning there, I will post it on our newsletter that comes out every Monday. Uh, make sure that you're subscribed to that. If you are not, talk to Deanna Rockholm today or me in the coming weeks, and I'll be glad to get you set up with that. Today, we're finishing up the study of Galatians that we've been taking on this summer with Galatians chapter 6. Uh, but before we get into the text for today, uh, I want to give you a little PSA about what's happening next at Cross of Life. So after we finish Galatians today, next Sunday, we are going to get into a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so at our 945 communion time, normally we're working through the six foundational truths about Christianity. We're just going over them again and again and again because we want to make sure that we have a solid foundation about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, but I also want to bring those six foundational teachings, or what are often called the six chief parts of the faith, uh, into our regular 1015 worship as well. So that not only are we learning these things if Cross of Life is our church home, but we're also showing to the community this is what we foundationally believe about Christianity. So a couple years ago, we did the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this year, we're going to do the Ten Commandments. And this coming Sunday, uh, we're going to do kind of an overview. Like, what are the Ten Commandments here for? Uh, they're not just rules in a vacuum that we're supposed to listen to in order to make God feel good about us. I mean, if the book of Galatians has taught us anything, that's not what they're there for. So what is God doing when he gives the nation of Israel and the New Testament church the Ten Commandments? That's what we're going to study next week. So I encourage you to be there for our last agape breakfast of this sun summer. And then uh, two Sundays from now in September, we are going back to our normal uh, worship schedule with 9.45 a.m. communion and 10.15 worship. All right, so without further ado, Galatians chapter 6, I encourage you to follow along with your Bible because we're going to go through this text verse by verse today. I'll read it for us, then we'll go back and study it. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use to write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Okay, so you can't read Galatians chapter 6 without reading the first five chapters of Galatians. So if you haven't been with us for much of this series on Galatians, I really encourage you to go back and study this book and understand what's happening. Because if you don't have the first five chapters of Galatians, you might be tempted to think that this is just a law code given to us to know how to be really good Christians. Uh, But it cannot be that. In fact, what it is, is a continuation of a big thought that Paul has been giving us uh, in one context for the first five chapters of Galatians, and now he's going to take that same thought and he's going to apply it to another context in chapter 6. So, to understand this big idea, Galatians is about this one thought. It's not about you. It's not about you. For five chapters, the Apostle Paul has made it clear that your salvation is not about you. The work necessary to save you from your sins, to promise you eternal life, to give you the acknowledgement and affection and acceptance of God the Father is not about you. It is completely Christ's work on your behalf, his perfection in the place of your imperfection, his adherence to God's law in the place of your rebellion against God's law. Everything necessary has already been done for you. Therefore, there are no amount of sins that you can pile up in order to overcome God's grace in your life. And there is no amount of religious activity or good works that you can produce that can add anything to the status that you have before God. Now, it's primarily the second of those two truths that you can't build up any more good works to add to your status before God that Paul has been railing against in the first five chapters of Galatians. Uh, But both are true. And both should be the takeaway that we have from Galatians as its main point. Our salvation is not about us, and that means the pressure is off. But now what Paul is going to do is he's going to take that same thought, that it's not about you, and he's going to apply it to your relationship with others. He's kind of hinted at this, giving us the foundation by talking about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and saying that, in general, if we have the motivation that comes from the freedom of the gospel, we are going to be beneficial to others. Because, frankly, that's what fruit does, right? Fruit is only beneficial to everyone but the tree itself, (laughs) right? The tree does not benefit from the fruit that it produces. Um, the, The seeds inside the fruit might benefit. The animal or person who picks that fruit might benefit from it, but the tree itself never benefits. And, And God says that Christians are the same way. We, in our good works, are constantly trying to benefit each other because we live in the freedom of knowing that everything that we have ever needed has already been granted to us in Christ, fully in his death and resurrection, and we cannot lose it or earn more of it. And so he gets specific. And it might seem like sort of a grab bag of, of like concepts that he's talking about here. He's talking about forgiving people and then watching yourself and then carrying each other's burdens and testing your own actions and then paying your pastors. And like it just might seem like kind of a grab bag of thoughts, but it, it really isn't. All of these thoughts build on each other to help you see that your good works are really also not about you. So let's walk through the text and see what Paul is getting at here and put it in the larger context of Galatians as we finish our study today. He starts by saying, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So a couple things to notice here. First of all, he says that a Christian who is motivated by the Spirit 
will notice other Christians. And that maybe seems like sort of a perfunctory thought, like, of course, you're going to notice other Christians. But how often does that actually happen in our churches? I think because many North American Christians have a consumerist mindset about church, I come and I consume my spiritual commodities, and then I go back home and live my life. I don't really invest in community with other Christians. Uh, I don't have to do this, or I or maybe just don't even think about doing it. But it is our calling as Christians to care about each other, to be able to notice when someone is caught in a sin. Uh, it is God's command that we ought to pay attention to the other people in our church. And, and right off the bat here, I, I want to address a, a very specific group of people um, who come to our church regularly. And that's those of you who attend Cross of Life regularly, but are not members. I think it's time. Like, I mean this not because I need to climb any leaderboard of how many people are in my church or because our church needs more offerings or something like this. That, that's not the point. We don't need that. But because God wants this for you. God wants you to be accountable to other Christians. And he wants you to provide what those other Christians need. He wants you to invest in a community so that you can, if you're caught in a sin, be restored gently by somebody. Or if you see somebody in a sin, you have not only the calling, but the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to restore that person gently. I realize it's easy to want to keep your distance from a church. Who knows what might happen if you commit to things? And frankly, our culture is super non-committal. We don't really like to commit to anything except maybe our Netflix subscription. But I mean this in the most love that I can muster. It's time. It's time to really seriously consider becoming a member of this church. And if you don't want to, if you don't really care about what God says here, you're welcome to keep coming and keep checking it out. I realize if you're still wrestling with faith, like we don't want to put the pressure on you. But if you know Jesus and you love Jesus, then hear Jesus here. Jesus wants you to be in a Christian community. And if you've been coming here, you at least know a few people around here, why not try us out? If you want to pursue that, um, talk to me or send me a, a contact through our, email, our website and we'll talk about what it takes to uh, become a member of our church. But more to the point here. He says, if someone is caught in a sin, you should restore that person gently. I think it's interesting that he phrases it caught in a sin. He doesn't say that the person is pursuing that sin, willingly going after that sin. No, they're caught as if it's something passive, something that has happened to them. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who pursue sin without any regard for God's law. Those people exist. They're called unbelievers. They're called non-Christians. People who don't care about what God has to say, but they're going to do whatever they want to do. But here specifically, we're talking about someone who loves God, but whom sin has attacked. And very often, this is the case. You know, I especially see it as I look at the relationships that we have in our church. It, it's so often that when someone mistreats another person, speaks ill of them, um, doesn't, doesn't act in a way that's becoming of a Christian within our congregation, people tend to blame that person. Say, how could they? When, when more often, I wish we would say, what's going wrong? Like, what's happening to them? Uh, the cognitive behavioral therapists, they get this. There used to be a, a way of doing psychology, of therapy, that was basically to say, like, what do you need to change in order to get better from your anxiety or your depression or your, your you know, bipolar or whatever it is? But what, what they're understanding more and more now, and I think this is, is very biblical, is that very often the, the negative things that happen in our life and then therefore the negativity that we produce is often a product of something that's happening to us. And what if we had that same attitude? What if when we saw somebody hurting somebody, we thought, well, who's hurting them? 
When we see somebody sinning against us or sinning against another, we ask ourselves, who's sinning against them? It doesn't excuse the fact that they're sinning. But it is, I think, a more compassionate way to, to approach a person who is sinning. I think that's why he says that if they're caught in a sin, you should restore them gently. To understand that there, there's a place to say that's wrong. God's law says differently. But also to understand that, that something is happening to them. Now, the thing I also want you to notice about this verse is whose responsibility this is. You know what it says? It says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are the pastor should restore that person gently, right? That's not what it says. It says, you who live by the Spirit. Who lives by the Spirit? People who have received the Spirit. How do you receive the Spirit? The Apostle Peter says in his Pentecost sermon, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you have been baptized, you are a Christian, and you are responsible for this. This is every one of us. This is not the pastor's responsibility. This is every person's responsibility to look after each other and watch out for each other in our various ways that we are attacked by sin regularly. But then he continues and says, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. I think there are a couple different ways that you can understand this. First, maybe as you get close to somebody who is falling into a sin, you might be tempted to fall into the same sin. I suppose that's possible, although I don't think it makes very much sense. What I think he's probably getting at here is saying, when you correct somebody, when you're, you're coming to them and saying, here's something I see in your life that's, that's not right by God's law, it is very easy to believe yourself to be better than that person because you've figured it out. You were able to notice that thing in the first place that they seemingly were not able to notice. And how quickly you can get puffed up about yourself and how holy you are, or at least how repentant you are, which is interesting to be arrogant about humility, but it, it is what we do, right? Because we're so twisted and corrupted by nature. See, every one of us ought to come to our brother or sister who is caught in a sin with a humility that says, I could have fallen into the exact same thing given your circumstances. But there's grace. There's grace for you, just like there's grace for me. And the things that I struggle with are different than the things you struggle with because my circumstances are different than yours. But the same sinful nature that lives in me lives in you. And the same Jesus who died for my sins died for your sins as well. Only there can we have the humility necessary to restore each other gently. But again, this is a challenge. I mean, how quickly we can think of ourselves as, as smarter or more capable because we read our Bible more or we pray more or we're in church more or we're more well-read than somebody else or even things that aren't exactly our effort, like we were raised up in the family that we were raised in or raised in the society that we were raised in or raised in the community that we were raised in, like things that we couldn't even control. We might think of ourselves as better because of those things. Banish the thought. As I come to you to try to correct you and then restore you gently, I, I want to do it as much as possible in a spirit of humility that says, I am just as capable of that sin and just as much forgiven by Jesus for it. He then says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. I think it's easy if you take that verse out of context to think that he's just saying, when people have it rough in life, that you should just kind of walk with them. And that's true. That's, there's a lot of Bible that talks about that, but that I don't think is what he's talking about here specifically. Uh, specifically in the context, he's talking about sin. And literally, the way the Greek writes this is, um, is sort of to endure one another's struggles. In other words, when a person is caught in a sin, it is very likely that they are not going to fix it just like that. Uh, it is going to be something that they continue to struggle with time and time again. 
And what you're called to do is be patient with that person and struggle with them, endure them, even as they continually hurt you or hurt others. Because sin is a nasty beast. Uh, Satan hates us and hates our faith. But the forgiveness of sins is the only way that we can shut him up and find the freedom again that Christ wants for us. He continues in verse 3, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Uh, See, it seems contradictory here for him to say everyone should carry their own load after saying carry one another's burdens. But I I think he's continuing this thought of saying uh, when you correct somebody, it is very easy to puff yourself up. Instead, Think about yourself and yourself alone. Who makes you holy? Jesus. Why did he need to make you holy? Because you are completely corrupt and on your own on a highway to hell. But because he mercifully defeated you, sent his Holy Spirit in order to do what you don't want to do by nature, you are going to restore a person gently. Again, this is making the point that this is not about you. right? Even as you do the good works that are prescribed for you to do, they don't count for anything for you. Uh, Maybe to put this in a larger context, what the Judaizers were telling the Galatians to do was to be holy so that they could gain points. They could be a little bit extra notable in the kingdom of God. Paul says, it's not that you shouldn't do good works. You absolutely should do good works. It's not that religious activity is worthless. It has value. But the place where it becomes worthless is when you start to think that it counts for anything. You start to think it builds your reputation with others or with God. No, you are who you are because of the sin that you contributed to the necessity of your salvation, which Christ carried out for you. Then he makes kind of what seems like a hard left turn when he gets to, to verse six. He says, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Um, this is a Bible passage that tells you to pay your pastors. Uh, anyone who shares the gospel with you, if the gospel motivates you in any way to live a God-pleasing life, part of that will be that you will use your financial resources to take care of that person who has dedicated their life to being a pastor. Now, I want to talk about that specific idea a little bit more in a second, but let's not lose the context before we get there. Um, Paul is again saying that if you believe the gospel and if good works are being produced in your life, that is not your work. It is, in fact, the work of the Holy Spirit through the people whom he has called to be the ones who give you God's word, that it's all happening. And in that sense, you ought not to thank yourself for being so righteous or so holy or so faithful or so willing to have difficult conversations with other people, but you ought to say, well, how did I get that boldness? How did I get that faithfulness? How did I get that patience? I got it from the word. And where did I get the word? I got the word from God's called servant. And so I have to take care of him. So specifically on the idea of paying your pastor, the Bible says that you should pay your pastor. Um, The Bible does not say how much you should pay your pastor, but I do think there are some interesting things in church history that help us understand this. Um, One of the things that uh, the Old Testament Christians did before Jesus came is they would form synagogues. You see synagogues showing up in the Gospels uh, regularly in Jesus' life. And in the synagogue, uh, or they would form a synagogue around 10 families. And uh, they did this because they saw that if you had 10 families who were all giving their tithe, their 10% offering to the work of the church, you could pay for a, a person to preside at worship and take care of the life of the synagogue at the same standard of living as the 10 families who were all living there together. So if all 10 families made whatever, let's throw out a number, if they all made $50,000 a year, well, if they all gave 10% of that, they would give it to their their priest and he would get 
well, $50,000 a year, right? And if you made $500,000 a year and you have 10 families who all make $500,000 a year, well, the pastor or the priest would live at the standard of living of his congregation. Um, this is really hard to do <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, and so our church body has just put in place um, some guidelines for how much you pay your pastors. And, uh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I think that's an interesting thing to consider for us uh, because I'll be frank with you. My life is fine. I, I get paid enough. Um, but I will say that I don't pastor you as well as I wish I could. And it is because I don't have enough time for all of you. Uh, Cross of Life, depending on how you count, has anywhere around 100 members, something around 30, 35 family units. Um, if, you, if you go to people who are regularly in worship, that number gets a little bit lower. Uh, but the point is, it's not 10. And I think there's something there for us. Like, Jesus chose 12 disciples, 12 people whom he could intentionally pastor. The, the apostles in the New Testament of Acts did the same thing. They made sure to appoint pastors in the congregations in order to take care of, fam, of about 10 to 12 families in any given spot. And I, I wonder if there's something there for us as well, that we can actually ask our pastors to pastor us the way that God has prescribed for them to pastor us if we are giving of our offerings. It's not that our pastors need to get paid more. I think actually they should get paid the same as the people that they live around. They shouldn't be poor, neither should they be rich. But the point here is to say, well, how can we empower our pastors to be as effective at the thing that God has called them to be as possible? And if you think I'm all just making this up, uh, it's actually right in the text. Look at the next verse. He says, do not deceive, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In other words, he says, if you want a pastor who is stretched thin, taking care of, of so many people, with only his one life, then you're going to get what comes from that. You're going to get a scatterbrained pastor, an overworked pastor, a stretched thin pastor. But if you are willing to support him generously, you will actually find that he has more and more time for you because you'll be able to provide for more and more pastors to take care of more and more people and take care of them in an effective way. Now, I want to stop here and make sure that I say this clearly. I'm not talking about you and me. Right? Like, I am happy to serve, and it's not about the money for me. But I do want us to consider this as we think about what it means to be a congregation for our future. As we think about what it means to staff our congregation. As we think about what it means to start new congregations. As we think about what it means to be a congregation that's no longer on uh, the subsidy of our church body, where our pastor's salary is a required amount because of our agreement with them where we can suddenly pay our pastors as much or as little as we want to. We ought to have this principle in place that, that we should share all good things with those who preach us the gospel and that we should not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Uh, if we are not going to take care of our pastors, um, they are going to go away. And I don't mean that as a scare tactic. I just mean that as statistically true. Um, our, our churches have not enough pastors across our church body. And if a pastor is in a place where he can't reasonably live, uh, he's going to move somewhere else. Um, many pastors are martyrs. <laughs> they're willing to do difficult things for the gospel, but they're still human beings. Um, and again, this is not about me. I am provided for just fine. I'm not asking you to give me any more money, <laughs> but I am, I, I am teaching you God's word because this is important for our future. He continues after this, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. 
Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Uh, this is just fruit of the Spirit, works of the flesh, uh, on repeat. He's saying all of this comes from a motivation that is either the freedom of the gospel or it is the coercion and slavery of the law. And then he says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I do think this is an interesting passage, because if you were to ask uh, the average Christian in North America, who are they to do good to? I think most of them would say, all the people outside of our church. And it's not that we shouldn't do good to those outside of our church, but, but Paul says here that especially we ought to do it to the family of believers. Now, why do you think he says that? I think he says that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think he says that because Jesus says that. <laughs> Jesus says that uh, it is by the way that you love one another that people will know that you are my disciples. That the people will look at the Christian church and see how much we care about one another, how much we are in each other's lives, that we can restore each other gently when we are caught in a sin, that we take care of each other's physical needs, not skimping on how much we give to one another in order to provide for them, but generously providing for the needs of one another. They will say, wow. Something's different about that. The second reason is just more practical. Frankly, I think in, in North American Christianity, uh, we have gotten into this idea that Christianity is a brand that we are trying to get people into. And the way that we're going to do that is by essentially doing a sales pitch, which is we're going to be really nice to you so that you join our club, so that you give more money to us so that we can survive. And I know that sounds harsh and, and brash, but it frankly is the truth. I think Christians got to realize that what's going to actually bring people into the family of believers is not a sales pitch. It's not, look how nice we are. It's going to be that if you're going to come here, you're going to be included in a genuine community that cares about each other like no one else does. Now, to encourage you, I think this happens at Cross of Life in, a, in numerous ways. Um, but I want it to be more so <laughs> because that's what God wants for us. And I believe that's at least the scriptural key to bringing more people in. Then the last part of the letter uh, is a little bit of just sort of conclusion to what Paul has been saying. He says that he's writing this part with his own hand, which is a, at least a reference to the fact that Paul would not have actually put the pen to paper to write these things down. He would have spoken this and some scribe would have written these things down. But Paul actually grabs the pen for this last little section and says, I'm going to write this part because apparently it's that important to him. And what he says is that these people who are trying to... Uh, get you to be circumcised. They are doing it for their own reputation. And again, this sums up what we've been talking about in this entire chapter. People who try to get others to behave for their own good, for their own reputation, to make themselves feel better about themselves. Not just because they got someone to agree with them, but very often because they self-justify. They believe that they're pretty good because pick the thing. I, I read these type of books. I watch these type of shows. I act this way around people. I, I'm this way with my phone or my family. Uh, i I have all these things that I, I use to say that I'm worthwhile. I'm a good person. And if I can get you to agree with it, that validates the fact that I'm a good person. The Apostle Paul says, none of that among Christians. Let's go back to the scriptures and see what is right and what is true by God's law. And if someone is caught in a sin against that law, then let's restore them gently. But let's not make this about us. So he finishes with this powerful phrase. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. In other words, he says, everything that I am, everything that I do, goes back to Jesus. If it's about me, if it's about what I've accomplished, who I am, what I'm capable of, 
then I miss the point. But if I wake up every morning and say, there but for the grace of God go I, I have no business being alive today. I have no business doing good today. But the Lord Jesus Christ has died for me. He has given me his Holy Spirit to rid me of the sin that naturally uh, is produced in my life so that I can be a blessing to my neighbor. Then you get it. Then you're a new creation. That's not that you need to do these things in order to be a new creation. No, you already are. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again for you, and you believe it. But the odds are he's not coming tomorrow. <laughs> so what are you going to do tomorrow? Why not live fully for the, for the blessing of your neighbor in the freedom that Christ has given you? That's what Paul's getting at in Galatians. And so I hope you've gotten that, and I hope this study has been a blessing to you. I look forward to seeing you all next Sunday. Amen.